will be in Luke 11, uh, verse 27. Right. <clears throat> I'll read that. It says, As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you in the breast at which you nursed. And he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation, for it seeks a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, and when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Um, so that first part is kind of strange where the woman is kind of shout something out. It's a very Lucan theme. Luke really does that quite frequently. His way of actually, actually for us, it almost seems like he's disconnecting these parts, but it's actually his way of connecting the parts. Um, what Luke often likes to do is have someone say something very off-putting and out of place. So as almost like a transition to his next thing he wants to talk about, not to disconnect them, but to connect them. So his way of connecting what Jesus was saying before is having this woman randomly shout out something, uh, basically the equivalent of saying, your mother must be so proud of you. He says, well, don't worry about that. Those who are blessed are those who keep the word of God. And then he sees the crowds coming to his teaching and he keeps teaching. And even after this, it says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So it keeps going. And that's, again, what I want to keep emphasizing, you know, is symbolically take a pencil and cross out the chapter heading because if you do, you'll remind yourself these stories are connected. But what happens is basically we, and even unbelievers, you know, had this presupposition that Jesus was this good moral teacher. So you read his teachings in the light of he just came to be a good moral teacher. So the thing about the lamp and the thing about the body and the thing about Jonah and the thing about the removing seven demons and they come back even more, those have nothing to do with each other. But you'll see that they're actually very intimately connected and he's trying to teach them something through using multiple different layers of metaphors. And he actually keeps going with the Pharisees and the lawyers in the next section. And then he actually keeps going through chapter 12 and he just keeps going because he's, he's really connecting this big mass teaching towards them as a whole. So this woman interrupts and then he sees that the crowds are coming in and he starts talking about this evil and adulterous generation. This is a wicked generation. That's actually language from Deuteronomy 32, uh, which is kind of a summary chapter of the Torah. It's the last chapter in the five books of Moses. It's a summary chapter, and that's language about the Exodus generation. He's really summarizing, walking through the history of Israel and about the generation that came out of Egypt through the Exodus who committed the sin with the golden calf at Sinai. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation. So Jesus is saying, your generation is just like your ancestors who came out of the Exodus because they didn't realize what God was doing right in front of them, and they demanded a sign, and they committed adultery with the golden calf at Sinai. It's not a great crowd to be lumped in with, especially if Jesus is the one telling you that. So he, he kind of lumps them together in with that crowd because they're asking for a sign. And I think signs are kind of strange. And, and first thing in the context is he just, because if, if you don't break it up, he just gave them a sign. <laughs> 
he gives the teaching on the Lord's Prayer, and then immediately uh, there's a man who's mute, and he causes him to speak. He casts out a demon. The man that they all knew was mute now speaks. He just gave him a sign. But what do they do? They said, oh, there's a sign, but you cast out demons by the power of the evil one. So, so some sign, and they said, oh, now we want another sign. He's like, every time I give you a sign, you say, I do it by the power of Satan. Signs don't really work. That's pretty interesting because Jesus is constantly doing signs that could very easily show that the finger of God is working in him, but all they do is say, no, this is the power of Satan. Because at the end of the day, people just don't want to believe him. Signs won't really work. And signs uh, now may look a little different. Of course, I think people do still, you know, maybe ask for a sign. Oh, God, I believe if you just give me a sign, you know, oh, Jesus raising from the dead wasn't enough. I just need a different sign, something more personal that is more, you know, remarkable and interesting than Jesus raising from the dead. I need a sign and no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. We'll look at what that means. But signs now are, are more just preferences. And it's not even as, you know, as powerful. So if we see you cast out another demon, then we'll believe. It's more of just like, well, if, you know, this church had this or that, or if the preaching was like this or that, or the worship was like this or that, then I would go and be a part of it. Then I'd believe. Or if I could get answers about Genesis, or I could understand the dinosaur, the tectonic plates, if I could understand all this stuff, then I'll believe. And if you'll realize, it's always a smokescreen for something else. Because it's always funny to me, especially when it gets really personal. It's like, well, the preaching was this or that, or the worship was this or that. It's like, I can write down seven churches in this city with those exact specifications, but you're not a part of any of those. You don't want to sign. You just don't want to believe. But that's an easy smokescreen to put up. says, well, I would believe if, insert whatever you want. It turns out all of those specifications that some church are being met in some way, but you don't want to be a part of them because you just don't want to believe that Jesus raised from the dead. Because if he did, then everything is different. And that really shakes up your little kingdom that you're trying to build here. So signs haven't really changed a whole lot. <laughs> you can cause a mute man to speak and they'll say, well, no, we don't really want to believe that because then we'd have to be on board, on board with, with what you're saying. But it's kind of confusing because Jesus says, you won't get a sign, but you will get a sign. It's like, wait, what's he talking about? He says, this evil generation wants a sign, but no sign will be given to it except this sign. The sign of Jonah. It's like, wait, are we getting a sign or are we not getting a sign? And it starts to connect and make a little bit more sense if you understand uh, what the story of Jonah is and what the sign of Jonah is. If you understand the story of Solomon and you understand the role that Israel was given in the prophets. So he starts with the sign of Solomon. Well, I'll start with the sign of Solomon. And basically, because it's a lot shorter than the Jonah one. But what happens in Solomon is he very humbly asks God. He's given, uh, you know, God says, pray for whatever you want. I'll give it to you. And, and Solomon, instead of asking for wealth like the kings of the world, he asks for wisdom. Because that's how a good ruler leads. And you can kind of trace that theme back through the scriptures, backwards from First Kings, and notice that that is how the rulers were supposed to rule, with wisdom. Adam and Eve were supposed to rule with discernment and wisdom. And so was Abraham, and so was Moses, supposed to rule with discernment and wisdom. So Solomon, just like his father David, finally asks for wisdom. So God gives him wisdom and wealth. One of the most wealthy men who's ever lived, and the Bible says the most wise man who's ever lived. So God gives him both because of his, well, because he asked for wisdom instead of wealth. And what happened is he quickly became the wisest man in the, man in the whole world. And the nations around them began to hear about his wisdom. So the Gentile nations started coming to him, inquiring of him about his wisdom. And in 1 Kings 10, what you'll see is the quote, either Queen of the South or the Queen of Sheba, same person, but sometimes they say Sheba, sometimes they say South, referring to the same person. She hears about the wisdom of Solomon. So she comes to Israel to hear from God's king that he's appointed over Israel, who he's given wisdom 
She asks him all these questions and he answers all of her questions. He's filled with wisdom and she's impressed with how wise he is and how God has blessed him. And she says in verse six, or sorry, first Kings 10, verse six, she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came with my own eyes and had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that even I heard. And happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. So she summarized, she goes kind of talking to him and she's impressed by what she's hearing, what she sees. She's saying, truly God is with you. This gen- the point is she's a Gentile pagan queen. She comes to the, the king of Israel and says, surely God is on your side. Surely he is God. The Lord is God. That's the sign of Solomon is that this Gentile comes to God's chosen king over Israel and says, surely God is with you. And I can see that now. That'll be important because he's going to make a point that the sign of Solomon and the sign of Jonah are the same thing. But what can happen is we make the sign of Jonah something different than the sign of Solomon. So the sign of Jonah, what is the story of Jonah? If you have time sometime, just read through Jonah. It's really actually pretty short, four chapters. It's easy to read. It's a very funny uh, satire story. It's very funny. It's really a critique and making fun of Israel for the way they're being. So in the story of Jonah, Jonah, this prophet that you're already kind of skeptical of uh, because of his character that we're told of in 1 Kings, he is told to go to Nineveh. Now, that's no empty thing. Nineveh was one of the most wicked cities in the entire world, possibly in the history of the world, because that was during the time of the Assyrians, who were one of the most wicked empires the world has ever seen. I'm talking, I mean, skinning people alive, burning people alive, burning children alive, the most wicked people you'd ever see. And he says, go to the capital of the Assyrian Empire and tell them God is in charge and tell them to repent. (laughs) So, you know, the point is, Jonah, not rightfully, but you kind of understand where he's coming from. He says, go east to Nineveh, and Jonah goes to Tarshish, which is as far west as the known world was at that time. So he says, no, I'm going to go as far west as the world is actually discovered at this time to get as far away from Nineveh as I possibly can. He gets on a boat and there's a great storm while he's on the boat. And he's on this boat with these pagan sailors, Gentiles, who realize that this storm has got to be caused by one of the gods. So they cast lots to see whose God is causing this storm. It falls on Jonah. Jonah admits his fault and then says, throw me overboard and kill me so that this will stop, which seems heroic, but it's actually very cowardly. He's saying, kill me so I don't have to obey God. (laughs) It's not heroic. He's a coward. So they're very sad. And even these pagan sailors who you'd think would be more than willing to throw Jonah over and kill him to save themselves are pleading with Jonah to not do this to yourself. We'd rather face a storm and die than have to kill someone and your blood be on our hands. But they go through with it. Jonah demands that they do. They throw him over and immediately sacrificing and worshiping the God of Israel, even on this boat in the middle of the sea. Jonah, of course, is swallowed by a big fish. He says this prayer that seems really good in the, in the belly of the fish, but he actually doesn't repent or say he's sorry or say that he'll go to Nineveh. And then God's response is pretty comical. The fish vomits him out on land. It tells you what God thinks of his prayer. That's fine. You want a prayer that pray this kind of smoke screen of a prayer? Fine. We'll just throw you up on land. And Jonah goes, fine, I'll go to Nineveh. So he marches hundreds of miles east to Nineveh 
When he gets there, it tells you how big the city is. The city would have taken days to go through. So he gets to the city. He gets one day in and goes, ah, forget it. And he gives this five-word sermon to the city. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The problem is he doesn't say why or who. Who's going to overthrow it? He didn't tell them what to do. He didn't tell them what the problem was. He just says 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. It's five words in Hebrew. But it's really ironic and it's satire towards Jonah and towards Israel because all of a sudden these pagan wicked people start repenting and the king of Nineveh starts repenting and even the cows put on sackcloth and ashes and are mourning their sin as livestock. It's making fun of Jonah seeing how ridiculous you're being. You're so scared of God actually forgiving your enemies. So Jonah goes and he pouts on a hillside. He's pouting over the city, waiting for the city to be destroyed. And while in the heat of the day, God makes a vine come out of the ground and shades uh, Jonah, provides shade for him. And then when the heat of the day, he removes the vine and makes it burn up. And Jonah goes, now he's all mad that the vine was created and now destroyed, which is the point. He's saying, God says, you care that I created this vine and destroyed it. So why don't you care about the people I created that I'm going to destroy? Why don't you care? We at least, and the book ends with this really um, open-ended ending. It says, won't you at least care about their livestock? <laughs> Saying, if you'll care about this plant, we at least care about the cows of Nineveh? And it's a joke towards Jonah, or a joke, but satire towards them, saying, look how you're being. You care more about your plants and your animals than the people of Nineveh. And it ends. Because the point isn't what happened to Jonah, but the point is you look at yourself and saying, how am I being towards my enemies? Because Jonah's excuse for uh, not wanting to go to Nineveh, he says, I knew you were compassionate and steadfast and loving. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, that's his excuse for why he didn't want to go. He says, I knew if I went, you'd forgive the people of Nineveh. Like, that's the reason you didn't want to go. That's the way God describes himself in Exodus. That he's compassionate and steadfast and loving, forgiven even the 10th generation. Then Jonah goes, I knew you'd forgive him if I went, so I didn't want to go. So it's actually a book mocking Israel for their um, refusal to be a light to the Gentile nations around them. So then back to Luke, what is the sign of Jonah? And I find this pretty interesting because um, the sign of Jonah as it's usually kind of understood, I think it's partially true, but how it's usually understood is that the sign of Jonah is just as, you know, the son of man was in the belly of the fish for, uh, sorry, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and then came out. That's also the son of man will be in the earth for three days and resurrect. And that's true, but that's not where Matthew stops. And Luke doesn't even mention the fish. So is the fish the sign of Jonah? It's interesting because in Matthew 12, he says, For just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days. And then he will go to the Gentiles, and then they will repent, and then they will believe. That's the sign of Jonah. Not just, I'm going to die and resurrect, and then you'll believe. It's, I will die and resurrect. The Gentiles will all believe in me, just like the Queen of Sheba. Then you'll realize who I am and that I am who I say I am. So it's not so much a sign for you. It's a sign against you. So he's not saying, fine, I'll give you one last sign since you're asking so much, even though you're wicked and adulterous for asking, I'll give you one more and it'll be the resurrection. In a sense, that is true. But the point is, I'll graft all the Gentiles into myself. They'll believe in me like the Gentiles believed in Solomon. And then you'll know who it is that you rejected. Just like Solomon went to the Gentiles, so I will as proof for you that I am who I said I am. That's why Luke doesn't even include the part about the fish, because that's part of the sign of Jonah. But the, the point that it's a part of it, but the point of the sign of Jonah is that after he came out of the belly of the fish, then he went to the Gentiles. So when you see the Gentiles believing, you'll know Jesus is who he says he is. 
So it's not a sign for you. It's a sign not that you won't believe. It's not a sign so you will believe, and I'm sure he hopes that they do believe, but it's a sign vindicating himself, showing that he is God and that he is Israel's representative. But he keeps going in verse 33. This is why I think these are so connected. He keeps going. It says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see light. And then he goes into this weird section about your eye, and that is also connected. Now, like I said, in order to understand this, you have to understand the sign of Solomon, Gentiles coming to him, the sign of Jonah, uh, Gentiles then believing in the God of Israel, the same thing. And then the point of Israel, what was the role of Israel? And if you read Isaiah, if you read Micah, if you read Zechariah, if you read all the major and minor prophets, you'll see this repeated theme that Israel exists not just for herself, but the point of Israel existing is so that they can be a light to the nations. Isaiah 49, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 51, over and over and over. The servant's role in Isaiah is to be a light to the Gentile nations. So Jesus tells them the point of the sign of Jonah so that the Gentiles will believe. And God did not make you a light of the world, Israel, so that he could put you under a bowl, so that he could put you under a basket or in a basement. He made you the light of the world to put you at the center of the known world so all the Gentiles would know who God is. But what you did is you went and hid in the basement. You hate these Romans. Admit it. You hate them. You go and you hide in your little communities around Galilee. You go and do anything you can to avoid talking to Gentiles. And when Jesus shows up and starts healing centurion servants and teaching and eating with Gentiles, they hate it because they don't want to be the light of the world. They want to hunker down in the promised land and talk to no one. So that was Jesus' problem with them is that his point that God created Israel to be the light to all the nations. And if you look geographically at the promised land, I always find it very interesting because geographically in the promised land, I love that God told them what to do and then gave them the ability to do it. He said, I want you to be the light to all the nations, all the Gentile nations. But he didn't put them way out east in eastern China. He put them right east of the Mediterranean Sea. And in their time, that was the center of the known world. And he put Jerusalem in the center of the promised land, the center of the center of the known world. And if you look at geography, it's really cool because the Silk Road and the King's Highway and the Way of the Sea and the VMRs all intersect. The five main roads in human history all intersect right in the promised land. He says, I'm going to put you as a tiny little nation in the middle of the known world. And millions and millions and millions of people are going to walk through your front yard every single year. And then the Romans are going to come through and they're going to build all these roads. And even more people will walk through your front yard every single year. So that you can actually be the light to the nations. He's not going to, you know, make you the light of the nations and go put you in eastern Russia far away from everyone. He's going to give you the ability and put you in the place to actually do what he wants you to do. But Israel was supposed to be the light to the nations, but they put themselves under a bowl. And that is Jesus' critique is, I came to be the light of the nations. The sign of Jonah is that I will do what you fail to do. I will be in myself, as the servant in Isaiah picks up the mission that Israel failed. I myself will be the light to the nations that you failed to be. So then what's the deal with the eye? <laughs> Another metaphor. You got to really start taking metaphors and attaching them to, together with bowls and eyes and Jonah and fish and, and Solomon and all these crazy metaphors and start linking them together. It says when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. And he probably recognized this language, too, from elsewhere in Luke and in Matthew, where he talked about the good eye and the bad eye. Now, the key to understanding this is understanding it as a Hebraism, a Hebrew expression, an idiom. We have the same thing in English, like we say, go give a cup of cold water to someone. 
We don't actually mean giving them a cup of cold water. They're probably well hydrated. But the point is being the kind of person who gives cups of cold water to people, assuming they were in need. So you could give a cup of cold water to someone, but provide, provide for them in other ways. It's an idiom. It doesn't mean what it literally says. So um, ayin, uh, sorry, ayin ra'a and ayin tova, a bad eye and a good eye, was an idiom. And what it meant in a Hebrew expression was your righteousness and generosity towards others. You have a good eye or you have a bad eye. You have a good eye, you walk by the homeless, you walk by the marginalized, you walk by the hurting, and you, you recognize them, you see them. But to have a bad eye is to walk by them and act like you don't see them. You look down at your phone, you look away, you act like you're looking at something over there. You take a different way to work, so you don't have to pass them. You, know, you, you have a bad eye, you act like you don't see them, you look away from them, you go a different route to avoid them. That's a bad eye. You're not attentive to... And we're looking out for the needs of others. That's a good eye and a bad eye. And if you get that, it links right into exactly what Jesus is saying. That I made you the lamp to the world, the light to all the nations. But your eye is bad. <laughs> now he's mixing metaphors. But your eye is bad. And since your eye is bad, no one can see the light that I have made you to be. Because you're not righteous. You're not generous towards the poor. You're not helping the Romans and Gentiles who are spiritually starving and needing you. It can be used in financial terms, but is also used in general righteousness towards others. I set you as the light of the world, but your eye was bad. And so no one can actually see the light that I made you to be. And I think this connects really well with what he's about to say to the Pharisees and lawyers we'll go through next time, because he's showing them exactly how their eye is bad. He then goes to dinner with them. They want to know more about what he's teaching. He says, I'll tell you exactly how your eye is bad. You lay burdens on others that they can't carry. You create teaching that they have no ability to carry out. You withtreat to your little communities and interact with no one. That's how your eye is bad. Your eye is bad because you're not attentive to the needs of the marginalized. The goal was that um, the world would see Israel's good eye and see that, wow, they are so righteous. Their eye is so good. They're such a light to the world. Their God truly must be reigning. I want to know what their God is like because they're so righteous, their eye is so good. So Jesus in Matthew starts a sermon on the mount saying, you are the light of the world. You're the city set on a hill. So you then have to ask yourself, how did we do? How are we interact for them? It was how we're interacting with the Gentiles. Jesus then comes to pick up the mission that they failed, but the mission for the church is still the same. I don't think that our problem is necessarily we don't want Gentiles to believe, clearly. (laughs) I would assume we're all Gentiles. So that's not really our problem, I would assume. But our problem, I think, is very similar to that that uh, the people Jesus is speaking to had. They don't want the Gentiles to believe because we're all kind of like Jonah, aren't we? Right? We, We like the idea of God being compassionate and loving for me, but we don't like that idea of God forgiving and loving my enemies. We'll do anything it takes for God not to love our enemies. We don't want to love our enemies because we know God is compassionate and loving and he's going to forgive our enemies. But that is just what Jonah thought. And Jesus came to teach the opposite, that if you want to be a part of his kingdom, you have to love your enemies. You have to go the extra mile. You have to uh, turn the other cheek, even for a Roman, even a Roman soldier. You turn the other cheek. And then he modeled that perfectly in his death and resurrection. So if the church is going to be the light of the world to all other nations... We then have to have a good eye. We have to be attentive to the needs of the poor or the financially poor or the poor in spirit, the poor emotionally and physically and starving, that we have to be attentive to the needs of the poor. We can't pray that God would care for the poor and then he gives us the ability to care for the poor in spirit and then we just keep it to ourselves and we want a bad eye because they will never see the light that is in us through the presence of his spirit if we have a bad eye and that never gets out. So we must be the light of the world by having a good eye. There's one um, quote I think is really interesting I want to end with about this same thing. Oops, got a lost. 
Sorry about that. It says, your eye shows how convinced you are that God is stingy, that he is either unwilling or unable to care for you. It also reveals how disconnected you are from the struggles of others. No wonder Jesus says that life becomes dark indeed when you've cut yourself off from both God and the needs of those around you. On the other hand, if you're radically convinced of God's caring presence in your life, you're also confident that God will provide for your needs and others' needs, not just materially, but emotionally and spiritually too. Then you'll know that you've had a good eye when you've turned towards others and to trust God to care for their needs. Let's pray that we would. God, thank you.